okay. And really what we concluded is that because of limitations in two pieces of infrastructure, one in terms of transportation and the other in terms of housing, we're not generating enough housing to keep to keep growing and prospering, and we're not maintaining or expanding on our infrastructure system to move people around. And essentially, there's a huge gap between the potential growth of the region and what we're likely to get given the current status quo. This is Transit Unplugged. I'm Paul Comfort. Great to be with you on another edition of the world's leading transit executive podcast heard in 100 countries around the world, Transit Unplugged. News and views this week. Welcome to our newsmaker guest, Tom Wright, president of the New York RPA Association, who will be sharing some of the background and history of public transit in the New York region here in the U.S. and where it's headed in the future. But first, we take a look at headline public transit news from around the world. The biggest news in the public transit industry over this last month has been the opening of the Elizabeth Line in London. It was a major project. Most of you probably heard about it. The Elizabeth Line, named after Queen Elizabeth, is a mixed overground and underground railway that's meant to slash journey times across London from Shenfield in the east to Reading in the west. Estimated final cost around 19 billion pounds or $24 billion. Congratulations to Mark Wilde who was the chief executive officer under uh, Transport for London, who put it all together. And he recently announced that uh, he was leaving the agency after um, getting the project done, following the opening of the Elizabeth Line, which was a smashing success. They got it done in time for the Queen of England's 70th anniversary, her jubilee in office. She was able to visit it with uh, Andy Byford and the team there. Congratulations to them on pulling this out. A major project, the largest public transportation capital project in the world, completed. Wild took over the running of the Crossway Rail in late 2018 after it was announced the project would miss its December 18th opening date. And now he's announced that it's time to shift the leadership fully to TFL. He paid tribute to 75,000 people who worked on the, quote, incredible once-in-a-generation engineering achievement. He talked about that here on Transit Unplugged when I had him on as a guest last year. He also indicated in his parting message, I'm incredibly honored to have served as CEO. But the real credit, Mark says, goes to the determination and brilliance of everyone who worked so hard over 20 years to make this the success it so obviously is. Sure, we had some bumps in the roads, he said, and things did not always go our way. But throughout the whole 20-year journey, we never gave up. The outcome is truly world-class and a showcase for the United Kingdom engineering. He also thanked his executive team. And our friend Andy Byford said, who's uh, the head of Transport for London, it's with mixed emotions that I confirm that Crossrail CEO Mark Wilde will leave us on May 31st. Now that the Elizabeth line is open to the public and running passenger services, Mark will step down and Crossrail will transition to an operational railroad. Congratulations to Mark. He's going to go on a tour. He's going to be in July down in Australia, a whistle stop tour and New Zealand. Folks down there should take a look at maybe getting a chance to meet him uh, and talk to this really engineering wonderkind who has uh, helped been one of the uh, biggest leaders in our industry over the last few years, was on the uh, Underground Railroad for a while, and then taking on this largest project in the industry. Congratulations to all. Also, congratulations here on our side of the pond. Go to Julie Tim. Julie Tim has been recommended as the new CEO of the Sound Transit Board in Seattle, Washington. And on June 23rd, their board will consider Julie Tim for CEO, succeeding Peter Rogoff, who has been there for many years. Tim is currently the CEO of the Greater Richmond Transit Company in Virginia. 
and she's been recommended to lead the sound transit in the state of Washington by the Board of Directors CEO Selection Committee, which reviewed more than 90 applicants from across the country. Julie's a good friend of ours here on the program, Transit Unplugged, and has been a guest on multiple occasions, both at live events and on the podcast. I texted her several times this week about it, congratulated her, and she is very excited about um, about the opportunity. Congratulations to her and to Peter Rogoff for his legacy at Sound Transit that includes applying his deep federal experience to help secure critical funding for the region. And they have a billion, multi-billion dollar capital project that he has uh, been in charge of and has gotten the funding for. Congratulations to all there as well. And finally, we wanted to congratulate some agencies who won the American Public Transportation Association 2022 Rail Safety and Security Excellence Awards at the association's annual rail conference, which just concluded in San Diego, California. This is an important time. Safety and security in public transit here in the U.S. and around the world has uh, been raised as a top issue by riders to make sure they want to feel secure before they get back on the train and the bus. And congratulations to the New Orleans Regional Transit Authority, who earned a Certificate of Merit in Safety, and the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority, who earned a Certificate of Merit in Security. The Gold Award in Safety went to the British Columbia Rapid Transit Company and Vancouver, British Columbia, for its Zero Harm Initiative that has resulted in reduced lost time incidents, improved reporting, and better accountability. And the Gold Award in Security went to, went to the Miami-Dade County Department of Transportation and Public Works. Miami-Dade has reduced crime on its system by 30%, in part by working closely with its partners in the Miami Police Department. And we did talk with the CEO and the CIO of the Miami-Dade County Transit System on our current episode of Transit Unplugged TV, which you can watch on YouTube. And now on to our special interview with Tom Wright, our newsmaker from the New York RPA Association. Thanks for being with us this week and every week on the world's leading transit executive podcast, Transit Unplugged. Today, I'm excited to have with us on the line our newsmaker interview with Mr. Tom Wright, who's president and CEO of the RPA, the Regional Plan Association, a nonprofit celebrating its centennial this year. Congratulations, Tom. And thanks for being with us on the show. Yeah, I don't think going back over the archives, I don't think my predecessors thought we'd ever make it to 100 years. So it's nice to be here. Yeah, that's great. And I was going to say, I mean, you don't look 100, so it must have been somebody else before you, right? <laughs> it's scary how long I have been with the organization. I've been I've been with RPA for about a quarter of those 100 years. So Okay. Well, tell us about the organization itself. The reason we have you on is because this is you guys are doing some amazing work in the areas of infrastructure in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and are really an advocate for using public transit as a way to improve you know, our society. So tell us some about your agency and what you do there. So Regional Plan Association, we're a private nonprofit civic group. We have zero weight of law. We're not an MPO or a council of government or a public authority. We don't get any public funding. But we've been around essentially for 100 years. It was, it was in the spring of 1922 that a bunch of civic and business leaders in New York City came together with a kind of recognition that they needed to be thinking about the long-term growth and prosperity and health of the entire New York metropolitan region, which is kind of all of northern New Jersey, Long Island, southwestern Connecticut, and the mid-Hudson Valley down south. And what they realized was there was no public entity, no federal, state, local, no public authority that was thinking about 
that entire metropolitan region. Some of them had been very deeply involved in the Burnham Plan for Chicago. Actually, the kind of founder of RPA, a guy named Charles Dyer Norton, had also been the leading light behind at the commercial club, behind getting the Burnham Plan together. And when wow. he came to New York, he wanted to do something comparable, but he wanted it on an even bigger scale geographically. He wanted it to be focused kind of on all of the different elements of the region, of the issues that were going to drive growth and prosperity. So it was laying out highway networks and thinking of mass transit connections, but also where should community development occur? Where should new housing be built? What landscape should be protected and preserved? What technology was going to drive our economy forward? And so in 1929, they released the first regional plan. And essentially since then, once every generation, in the 60s, the 90s, and four years ago, we've released a regional plan that looks out an entire generation, 20, 25 years, and says, here's where we need to go. These are the investments that we'll need. These are the policies that we need. This is what the public sector needs to do. This is what the private sector needs to do. And it gives us a lot of latitude to be creative, innovative, and really kind of looking around the bend. Who are the stakeholders of your group that are kind of behind this push? We have a wonderful and large board of directors that includes a lot of former public officials. We don't, our bylaws don't allow public officials to be on the board, but the former heads of the MTA and the Port Authority and deputy mayors and governors and lieutenant governors and others are on our board. About half of our board members have actually served in the public sector. And, and so we're kind of the place where, you know, where, where those folks come to contribute once they're out of the public sector. And we're able to kind of push on the agencies and the political leaders to, to think higher and shoot higher and, and bigger and bolder. And what's some of your vision? Well, you know, we so we released our fourth regional plan just about four years ago. And in it, we looked at you know, what are the growth trends of the region? What could kind of, you know, screw us up along the way? And really what we concluded is that because of limitations in two pieces of infrastructure, one in terms of transportation and the other in terms of housing, we're not generating enough housing to keep to keep growing and prospering. And we're not maintaining or expanding on our infrastructure system to move people around. And essentially there's a huge gap between the potential growth of the region and what we're likely to get given the current status quo. And so we're all about trying to increase investment in these in the underlying system so that we have the potential to grow and to do things that's it's not just the amount of growth but it's the quality of it. We want we want development around our transit hubs. We want to, you know, clean and green and move to renewable energy systems. We want the prosperity to be more equitably shared across communities and to break down, you know, segregated land use and zoning barriers and things like that. So we're really about trying to kind of create the the healthiest, most prosperous, most sustainable metropolitan region that we possibly can. That's great. So we just had the big bipartisan infrastructure law, which pumped a lot of funding into the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area. How are you advising that be spent? Yeah, we're, we're obviously very excited to see that bipartisan infrastructure bill approved and have been very deeply involved in all three states and really even the entire Northeast Corridor, the mega region from Boston to Washington in terms of prioritizing investments in mass transit and and other systems where we need it. Look, 
We think that the Gateway Project, building a new tunnel under the Hudson River to allow for the repairs to the 111-year-old now tubes under the Hudson, and then eventually doubling capacity, is absolutely vital. And for us, that the Gateway Project and renovation and expansion of Penn Station is absolutely critical to the long-term health, not just of New York and New Jersey, but the entire Northeast. We did a study with some partners a few years ago about what would happen if Amtrak had to close the tunnels to make repairs before the new tunnels are built. And you can measure the economic impact all the way down to Virginia. We estimated that some 10,000 people would have to get in their cars and try to drive to work. And 10,000 additional drivers in a weekday morning doesn't sound like a lot in an economy with millions of jobs. But because the system, our highway system, is already essentially above capacity, and even you know post-COVID, We've seen that driving came back faster and harder than mass transit ridership. An extra 10,000 people trying to drive to work crashes the entire system, you know, and you get traffic jams in Morristown, New Jersey. So, so we're really focused on the Gateway Project and getting that moving and then also renovating and expanding Penn Station and using that to kind of to build out Midtown Manhattan and, and expand our commercial corridor. And so that's a big piece of it. But we've got a lot of other priorities, too. Governor Hochul in New York has recently endorsed a proposal we've been kicking around for about 25 years, which was to take the very lightly used Bay Ridge line, which runs through um, Brooklyn and Queens with freight rail, and add uh, commuter passenger service to it. And this is an, she's calling it the Interborough Express, and Jano Lieber at the MTA deserves enormous credit for really championing this project. And so we're seeing that move ahead. New York will be the first city in America to implement congestion pricing next year. And that's going to be a huge priority. Is that definitely happening? I hope so. I mean, I've, we've been working on it for 25 years. But both, both the Interborough Express and congestion pricing were recommendations in RPA's third regional plan. And by the way, you know, I got to ride on the inaugural train on the Second Avenue subway and point out that we'd only been promoting that since 1929. You know, we like to say at RPA, eventually we bat a thousand on everything, but some things take longer than others. But so there's just an enormous amount of need here in the New York metropolitan region because the scale of the issues. I mean, the Port Authority bus terminal is another one. It's a crumbling facility. It's handling far more commuters than it was ever designed to. I think the Port Authority has a very good plan for expanding it now, essentially to kind of build a new facility next to it to do the expansion there and then renovate the existing one. And, and so we've been working in partnership with these agencies. There, there are times that we've had acrimonious relationships with them, but right now, happily, we find ourselves in a situation where the leadership in, in all three states, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, and the leadership of the Port Authority and the MTA and New Jersey Transit, New York City DOT, there's a lot of consensus around what our priorities are here in New York. And so everybody's trying to move in the same direction. And that's nice because I know that's not something we can take for granted. Right. And where are we at when it comes to, I know that you're not in the day-to-day -day weeds of running the agencies, but, you know, after the COVID pandemic, when ridership was was decimated, especially on our commuter trains like Long Island Railroad, Metro North, et cetera, where, where do you think we're at and where are we going, would you say, you know, when it comes to ridership? Yeah, that's the big question everybody has. And we're trying to do some kind of modeling scenarios right now to figure out what happens if people are working from home 
one day a week, two days a week, three days a week, which industries right. was this, you know, and, and, and what does that generate in terms of in terms of future demand? A few things to point out. One is that COVID hit us, you know, in early 2020, after a decade of unbelievable job growth, especially in the core of the region. When I was a kid growing up in New York and then out in New Jersey, I was living in the kind of 70s and 80s in a suburbanizing economy when 90% of the job growth in the region was outside New York City, and it was in Westchester or Nassau County or Northern New Jersey. But after 9-11, really, and in the first two decades of, of this century, most of the job growth was suddenly in the core of the region. And New York, for a while, was getting as much as 90% of, of the job growth. It was in the tech industry. It was We were seeing kind of lots of growth in, in tourism and hospitality, along with the traditional strengths in New York. That kind of job growth wasn't sustainable. And we were preparing reports, you know, arguing for communications-based train control in the New York City subway and building the gateway in the second phase of Second Avenue subway and things. And all of our reports and our analysis was concluding that if you looked at the need and when the projects were going to come online, we were going to fail to hit the deadlines because we needed the project sooner. I would say that post-COVID, assuming that you know, people have more flexible hours and work more remotely and things. From my perspective, what's happening is we're kind of rebalancing growth in the region. It's not a flight from the center. Manhattan is fabulous right now, and it's a great place to be, but it's not quite as crushed as it used to be, as it, as it was in, in late 2019 or early 2020. And so what we have is an opportunity to kind of grow in a more balanced way, but we still are going to need the capacity in those systems. Now, you know, we predicted this and this is how it's played out. People started to come back first driving. And so, you know, traffic crossings, the tolled crossings into Manhattan, the Lincoln Tunnel and Holland Tunnel and the Queens Midtown Tunnel and things, they got right back a couple months after COVID. They started to come back to where they were pre-COVID. And I think today they're probably slightly above those pre-COVID numbers. And people are just suffering in traffic on that. Subway and bus ridership, bus ridership didn't go quite as, as far down. And, it, and it's important to point out that we needed those numbers to go down. That was a public safety exercise. It wasn't kind of like suddenly people stopped riding, you know, subways and commuter rail. We told them to. We told people to stay home. And I think that's just important to keep in mind. But those have come back to a certain level, you know, at around 60, 65% of pre-COVID. And they've kind of plateaued. And obviously, like the tragedy last week on the subway with the shooting hurts things. But we still kind of see those numbers ticking up and expect that to keep going over time. And they might settle at, I don't know, 85% of what they were pre-COVID. But then that 15% is just a couple of years of continued growth before we get back up to where we were. The commuter railroads are the ones that I think have the most challenge because they are, you know, it's more journey to work. And so the numbers are, are slower to return there. The other thing, though, that's challenging for them is that their schedule and their service was really kind of focused on serving those commuters, whereas subways and buses were always doing, you know, off peak and reverse trip and, and all the, the non journey to work travel was there too. And that, and of course, those that travel has bounced back quite well. And that's kind of all good for them. On the commuter railroads, they've got the kind of dual challenge that on the one hand, ridership is still down. And on the other hand, people are traveling more, you know, in in uh, off peak or reverse right. commute or other things. And suddenly they've got to provide service, you know, the weekday afternoon from one to three o'clock that was sufficient on the Long Island Railroad pre-COVID 
isn't going to work for people who now say, well, I'm coming in for a half day and I don't want to wait an hour for the next train. And so even as ridership is down, they're seeing kind of higher expectations and more demands on their service. So that's going to be a real challenge. I think that, you know, that the strategy for New York to come back after COVID is to be a place that people want to be, is to hire, is to say, look, we have advantages that no other city in the world has in terms of our arts and cultural institutions and our, our restaurants and just how the excitement on our sidewalks and being in New York. And I think that our, our transit agencies know that they've got to be part of that too. And the goal is to try and make the experience as high quality as possible. And you know, we've seen that the European and Asian systems had really prioritized customer service, while in America, we were still just trying to get back to a state of good repair. And I think now this is just an added emphasis on us that we've got to start to think like, like those other counterparts around the world and say, you know, how can it be uplifting to ride mass transit? And by the way, as, as a regular commuter myself, I get work done on the train. You know, I'd much rather do that than be in a car when I'm actually you know, which is unproductive time. My train on transit is always is always very productive time for me. I love it. Well, Tom, congratulations on your 100th anniversary of the RPA and congratulations on the great work you're doing to help shape transit in America's most transit-oriented city where pre-COVID, 40% of our national riders rode in New York for the exactly. whole country. I don't think a lot of people knew that, but you guys are doing amazing work up there. Thank you for the great work you're doing. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Hi, I'm Alea Carey, a communications consultant who loves working with public transit agencies. The Regional Plan Association and other groups like it around the world play an important role in paving the way for effective, useful, equitable public transit. If you're listening to this podcast, you're a transit aficionado, and you already know a lot about the importance of planning and its difficulties. But how do we talk about this vital yet complicated part of facilitating transit to public stakeholders, from everyday riders to the voters who can support planning measures? First, consider your audiences. What's important to them about the plan? Will they get faster service, safer traffic patterns? Will new plans and new transit bring more shoppers to their doors or help get their kids to school? Break down your audience into personas and craft your communications to specific types. Next, illustrate through before and after pictures. What is the current obstacle to be overcome? How long is a commute time now and how will that be improved? Finally, engage, engage, engage. Offer public information forums online or in person with advance notice and plenty of time in advance of plan implementation. Yes, the planning process will likely have public engagement requirements, so make those be a part of your communication strategy, taking what you learn from the public and putting that into future communications plans. If you'd like to talk more about talking about planning to the public or anything else related to communications and public transit, look me up on LinkedIn. My first name is spelled E-L-E-A, last name C-A-R-E-Y. Hi, this is Mike Bismar, Regional Sales Director for Proterra, and this is Mike's Minute, where we talk about mentorship, leadership, and kindness with the hopes that it'll inspire you to pay it forward. Well, the hot topic and conversation in our industry is definitely employee recruitment, along with retention and bettering the workplace, as many agencies continue to struggle with staff shortages throughout their organization. It's also the theme that resonates on many of the agendas as we get back to attending more conferences and workshops. 
It's times like these that the importance of leadership, mentorship, and kindness are invaluable. Organizational change within our industry has always taken place. We've seen many great leaders rise and move throughout the industry from small to midsize into our largest agencies. Great leaders also attract great talent, and quite often that's because they allow them to grow, provide mentorship, and the tools to see them excel in the roles they've entrusted them with. As Paul and the Transit Unplugged team continue to bring us great leaders and guests like today, by default he has also provided us amazing mentorship. Those whom are excited to share their learnings, experiences, and best practices, it's a constant learning circle that we're privy to. Over the next few weeks, I'll be focusing Mike's Minute on the mentorship aspect and speaking to many of the leaders that I know and asking them who stuck out in their career, helped shape and mold them. If you'd like to share an important story or someone that was an invaluable mentor to you, feel free to reach out to me at any time. I'll be happy to share it. Again, thanks for listening. Kindness is cool and have a great week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transit Unplugged News and Views with our guest, Tom Wright of the RPA. Next week on Transit Unplugged in depth, we have Sam Sneed, director of the Anne Arundel County Department of Transportation. Want to stay in the loop with everything that's happening on Transit Unplugged and Transit Unplugged TV? Go to transitunplugged.com, sign up for our email newsletter. You'll be the first to know when a new episode is out so you can take a listen or watch. If you have any questions, comments, or would like to be a guest on Transit Unplugged, feel free to email us anytime at info.transitunplugged.com. So until next week, ride safe and ride happy.